Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. I'm Scott. I'm joined today by Drew. Hello there. And also Craig. He no longer heard the sound of the bull. Yes, so today we have a couple of films based in casinos to get through, hence the oblique reference to balls there, which is... To be fair, normally what we do in this podcast anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, Groupie A and Hard 8. So let's get cracking straight into those with a look at Groupie A. Yes, uh, remember when Clive Owen was a thing, so much of a thing in fact, that he was at one point an odds-on favourite for Bond. Hasn't quite panned out that way. But there was a period around the late 90s and early noughties where he had a bit of uh, heat around him, so it was perhaps a surprise when the critically well-received croupier barely made radar contact for audiences in 1998, UK audiences at least. In fact, had it not been shown first on TV, there was very serious talk of Owen being an awards contender for his portrayal of Jack, a struggling writer who takes a job at a London casino and finds his experiences providing the perfect inspiration. Reluctantly shooed into the job by his estranged father back in South Africa, where he grew up and first gained experience as a croupier, Jack's return to the gleaming floor seems to come as almost as much of a surprise to him as it does his girlfriend Marion, Gina McKee. It's not long, though, before Jack becomes intoxicated by the atmosphere of the place, taking measure of, and inspiration from, the colleagues and punters who now, once again, inhabit his life, a life he presumed to have left behind long ago. Transcending his surroundings, Jack becomes the all-seeing eye of the casino, a kind of omnipresent CCTV system all his own, second-guessing the actions, impulses and motivations of the clientele, one of whom is the enigmatic Yanni, Alex Kingston. Hailings from South Africa herself, Yanni integrates with Jack, who seems at first reticent and then altogether welcoming, of the opportunity to breach the gaming profession's rules around mingling with punters. As he finds his life becoming intertwined and increasingly inseparable from the narrative he has woven for himself, Jack is willingly propelled headlong into a plot to rob the casino, posing a threat to his colleagues, his relationship and himself along the way. Croupier is an interesting movie for many reasons, but it remains little known outside of cinephile circles, and the only reason it has any profile at all is probably because of the sleeper status it attained on the US art house circuit. Marketed there as being from the director of Get Carter, it died on its arse in its native UK, not least of all due to a press campaign that instead referenced Mike Hodges as, if I remember correctly, the director of A Prayer for the Dying, a film that nobody cared for, least of all Mike Hodges, who tried to disown it. (laughs) It's a shame it didn't find a wider audience, because although its slow burn, noir overtones and lack of action mean it was never likely to set the world on fire, it remains for me an engrossing pot boiler that hinges on a decent screenplay, great performances and Hodge's low-key directorial style. You won't hear me say this very often, but I've always even liked the narration from Owen. In all the times I've watched Croupier over the years, I've never been able to decide whether Jack's writing is the driving force behind his moral ambiguity or simply an excuse for it. As someone who's drawn to characters of precisely this kind of moral apathy, my inability to resolve Owen's portrayal is, I think, the primary reason I keep coming back to the film every so often. Owen walks a fine line between charismatic and unknowable that will undoubtedly be not to everyone's taste, but I very much appreciate his work here, and I can see why that convincing moral flexibility and dapper croupier attire would have given Broccoli and Wilson an easier time picturing him gripping a Walther PPK in a martini glass. 
If I have any gripes with the movie, my first observation would be that the relationship between Jack and Marion isn't really developed sufficiently to make one sympathetic to the latter as the plot unfolds. At least I hope that's the reason I feel as blasé about her final appearance as Jack seems to. As intriguing as I find him, I don't particularly want him rubbing off on me. This isn't Gina McKee's most substantial role, and it's fair to say she's somewhat wasted, kind of left to rattle around in a role that is necessary to the plot, but which Hodges seems unable or unwilling to marshal correctly. Kate Hardy fares just about as poorly as uh, Bella, a casino employee who becomes involved with Jack when he forces himself upon her in perhaps the movie's only really problematic scene. Fortunately, the same cannot be said of Alex Kingston, whose role is substantial and influence upon the plot pivotal. If this is noir, then Kingston is the femme fatale, though her input and performance here are more nuanced than that, and when the credits roll, she's probably the movie's only real winner. That's assuming, of course, that rather than attaining a traditional win state, we agree that Jack ultimately ends up where he wants and deserves to be. Don't know what else to say about Croupier, except that I really liked it back in the day, and I wasn't as disappointed to revisit it as I have been some other old favourites of late. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's quite interesting to me, Craig, that you mentioned the narration because uh, that was a potential pain point for me as well. Mm. I had never seen this film before. I think I've mentioned, uh, I know I've mentioned to you too, I may have mentioned previous podcasts, that mm. I'd never really cared for Clive Owen. Uh, mm. I couldn't particularly say why. There was just something about him I just, I didn't like, I didn't think he was a particularly good actor. Then it was probably Children of Men, but something at some point anyway maybe like oh no way actually I quite like him and having gone back to a couple of previous films I'm like no I actually do quite like him so what was going on there appreciate him a bit more yeah yeah actually maybe it was the born identity rather than children of men it's a small role but um, look at what they make you give (laughs) (laughs) yeah so I didn't like him and that's one of the reasons I'd never seen this film but I settled down to watch this and to be honest the alarm bells were ringing quite quickly and I was quite concerned because I don't like narration in film. I think 99% of the time it doesn't work. It shouldn't be there. Mm. This is one of those rare exceptions. It seems to work for both the combination of internal monologue and the structure of the book that he's writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe also just the way it's written too. But for me it worked here. So that was the first thing off the table. But again, alarm bells rang because it started... Well, it, one of his co-stars is Colin from Press Gang. And I see him and I think he's Colin from Press Gang. Um, and I was concerned by that because I really thought, he can only ever be to me Colin from Press Gang. And actually, um, while he still had a bit of Colin from Press Gang about them, uh, by the, like, kind of halfway through the film, um, like, he disappears, I guess, but halfway through his screen time, Paul Reynolds was like, I just know he's... He's actually cast reasonably well for this kind of slightly dodgy, slightly creepy guy. And I was thinking of more as the character in the film rather than Colin from Press Gang. So mm. that went away as well. The other issue was that Clive Owen can't pronounce Croupier and it was driving me crazy. That never went away. <laughs> but I just I decided not to let it bother me. Then there's the stupid hat. Also, it, it never went away, but the hat, or the bothering didn't go away. The hat did. So that was fine. <laughs> when? No, um, and the final thing though was the, unfortunately it gets rid of it quickly, but the, the dyed blonde hair, which had this been in the early 2000s would have made you think of Eminem probably, mm. if you're going to think of any particular person associated with that. In the 1990s, it's more of a Paul Gascoigne thing, and that's not great. <laughs> <laughs> but none of those are material to the film, fortunately, apart from the voiceover. And I actually really enjoyed it. I, 
Alex Kingston's accent, South African accent, it's not brilliant. I'm actually not sure why the, the South African angle's in there at all. It doesn't really add anything to the film. Mm. You could have made that anywhere. You could have worked in Las Vegas casinos or, I know, Monaco or something like that. There's no particular reason it was South African and why they kind of lumbered an English actress with this. And not entirely awful South African accent, but not a brilliant one either. But yeah, it's just, I quite like how kind of relatively low-key everything is. Mm-hmm. Everything about the casino, the plans, the criminals, all kind of low-key grotty, and it works really well. In, in a depressingly this, uh, British way. Yeah, this isn't high-stakes glamour or anything, you mm. know, it's not trying to bake, break the bank at Monte Carlo, it's just... No. It's, um, I've, I've never what, set foot inside a casino, but I know that this is exactly what the inside of a British casino is going to look like. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm quite sure it's like... Like, it, it's almost like, like keep passing the, so the Mayfair in Edinburgh, like Kerstorfen in Edinburgh. Mm. And basically, I always imagined the inside of it looks almost exactly like the inside of the casino in this film that I even haven't seen yeah. it. And it just, it just rings true. Yeah. And part of that, I think, is just that the laws limit the amount of money that can be spent in these things in this country. So there's, um, they're necessarily less, less salubrious places. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, all of that is rings true. So it's a, it's a decent story, uh, an engaging central character. And I enjoyed it. Uh, mostly of my reservations are the same as yours, in that I, I don't know what Gina McKee's doing in this film. Or cards like, she, there's not much of a character there. Mm-hmm. And I don't even think it's clear at the beginning that they're in a relationship because when he says he owes her rent, there's, it's so kind of flat and almost ambiguous. Like, is she just like a landlady with benefits? <laughs> it's not clear that they're actually a a part of their partners or anything and so she when uh, what happens to her character happens like, like uh yeah it's like i, I like you like i don't i wouldn't want to be a yeah. person that felt so little but i kind of understand in the, in the films like she doesn't really get much of a character and it's yeah we're not given, McKee's really we're, good we're not given much opportunity to care about her character yeah exactly she feels a lot like a character that was from some kind of much earlier draft of the film where it was a bit mm. more of a kind of kitchen sinky kind of drama uh, yeah, before it turned into what was basically an OR film. Yeah. Uh, with the detective replaced with a groupie and an author. I feel uh, like the intention was probably to have him sort of triangulated between these these three sort of dominant female roles, but really in the end it was decided there was only room for one of them to be substantial. Yeah. And I'm not mm-hmm. convinced it was the right one, really, because I think there may be, well, there'd undoubtedly be a lot more emotional investment if that relationship between him and Marion were a bit more substantially portrayed but i just i think it just about serves a purpose but it's by no means the most satisfying aspect of the film yeah i mean i don't think um the bella character she's probably even less well served so mm. she's barely in it at all but when you take the setup of gina mckee's character then you add it to what happens at the end and then they have that line from the police officer who goes i was in love with her too you know where did that come from? Why is that relevant? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it, the, the, the character doesn't merit any of the stuff that happens towards the end, or like that mm. you feel like you're supposed to feel from these scenes. That's what I mean. Like the framework's all there because you see her start that relationship with that guy after she after. Mm. She she discovers that after Bella turns up on the doorstep, and it's not that she discovers, it's that Bella turns up on the door and says, oh, by the way. <laughs> so we see Gina McKee's character start that relationship from there, but like I say, it's not, there's no real gravitas to it, or certainly way less of a sense of gravitas to it than... But then, do you know what, actually, again, perhaps it's just, again, a reflection of Jack's character, that the reason we're not given that much time to care about that character is because ultimately he doesn't. 
Maybe it's entirely intentional. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's just all this. Definitely a feeling of feeling like that one strand in particular feels really weak, mm-hmm. especially compared when clearly Jack is passionate because when he lays into that guy who molests him inside the casino um, mm-hmm. or assaults him inside the casino because he like he like really hates cheats and like you believe that and it's like there's something there and then that kind of anger and passion mostly goes away. I think maybe they show some of that if, if he thinks that what happened to Marion happened because of him. You think he would be angrier or something? But it seems like, oh, well, that happened, then I'll go to work now. Yeah. I think for me, the reason a lot of that doesn't work quite as well is perhaps the reason why a lot of the rest of the film does work, which is I always feel a little bit detached from Owen's character. Intentionally, I think that's mm-hmm. the case. He's, he's playing his cards close to the chest and keeping everyone else at arm's length, but that does kind of mean that when you're asked to invest in any of the relationships that he has, it's a bit harder to... You know, it's kind of harder for us to get invested in it because he doesn't seem all that invested in it himself. So it's just, you know, it does make it a little bit difficult to care, but it doesn't really spoil the rest of the film because the rest of the film kind of hangs together just as well as a kind of mystery and well, almost detective story as you get towards the end of it. So that all works pretty well for me in terms of that that kind of narrative is certainly more than strong enough to drive it through and I really quite enjoy enjoy the film um haven't seen this in donkey's years maybe since i don't know about the 2000s i guess when it was shown up on tv and i watched it there but uh yeah it's pretty good pretty good um well, very much like going in this and uh can't help but feel like he should have had a a, a bigger career than, mm. than perhaps he uh he has been given as whether whether that's bond or not i don't know but certainly he's generally does not fail to put in a solid performance at the very least so yeah this is certainly one of them yeah pretty good film quite enjoy it i think i think what's interesting about this and in uh, the sense of if we're going to compare it to the next film is that um this sort of surfacing toward toward the sort of natural end i suppose of mike hodge's career i think mike hodges is still with us isn't he he's not shuffled off this mortal coil but i, I don't know that he's been particularly prolific of output but certainly this is how many years after get carter 27 yeah 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 so that, you know three decades or there about after get carter we, you would expect that his best work would probably be behind him so to see a director at that sort of late stage of his career just sort of suddenly hold up this this polished gem and and not on the let's be clear not on the anywhere near the same level as get carter because very few things in life are but um to see him at, towards the end of his career come out with something as uh, as compelling as this uh, was interesting for me uh, when what should have probably by all rights have been as entirely his wilderness years it makes me want to go back and um re-watch i'll sleep when i'm dead because we haven't seen was, that since the cinema uh, again that, that i have seen and i don't remember i think i must have watched that just after i kind of realized that i liked clive owen yeah um and that's actually mike hodge's last film and that was seven 18 years ago now that's mental. I remember going to see that in the cinema with either one or both of you guys. I can't remember though, because I remember absolutely nothing about the film. Um, <laughs> so, but it does kind of make me want to go back and, and uh, watch that again. But, but there you go. But speaking of which, uh, uh, a, a, a director in their twilight years uh, producing a, a, a cracking casino based uh, movie to a director just starting out on their feature career uh, and doing likewise. That sounds very much like a lead into Hard Eight. Does it not? Uh, in which Philip Baker Hall's Sydney finds everyone's favourite lovable sad sack, John C. Riley's John Finnegan, slumped outside a Nevada diner, broke and forlorn after failing to win enough money gambling to pay for his mother's funeral. 
For reasons that will perhaps only become apparent as the film progresses, Sidney takes John under his wing in order to teach him the secrets of the gambling game, although seemingly that's mainly in the sense of tricking casinos into thinking they're high rollers and comping them rooms rather than actually winning money. Mm. Uh, But at any rate, it works well enough for them to stay together for two years, forming something of a father and son bond between them, uh, between the calm and collected Sidney and the, to use Wikipedia's somewhat euphemistical description, unsophisticated and not overly intelligent John. Uh, complications arise when John falls in love with a waitress and part-time hooker, Gwyneth Paltrow's Clementine. That second part of Clementine's CV leads to one particularly unpleasant situation that a panicked John calls both Sydney and his new friend, Samuel L. Jackson's Jimmy, a casino security worker who's more or less wandered in off a Tarantino set. This brings up some history and further complications between Sydney and Jimmy, and... I suppose the watchword here is economical, with a small set of characters and locations, and for the most part, this film's all the stronger for it. I'm certainly not going to knock any of the performances, uh, particularly surprising in the case of Paltrow, seen here as a decent actress, rather than the latter-day bullshit, woo-boo, new-age, hack-fraud, snake-oil saleswoman persona that she's devolved into of late. And the characters are interesting and likeable enough to pull us through what is just about the minimally viable plot although there's certainly some niggles uh, perhaps a holdover from its expansion from Anderson's previous short film Cigarettes and Coffee, there's points where this does feel a bit more like a series of ideas for neat character scenes rather than a cohesive story and while that's certainly more apparent when, say, typing up notes for a review than on casual viewing, it's still pretty noticeable. Uh, for example, great as it is to see your boy and ours, Philip Seymour Hoffman again, uh, there's a bunch of scenes that have no particular plot or arguably character utility. Um, even the more dramatically impactful final real scenes between Philip Baker Hall and Samuel L. Jackson barely feel connected to the earlier situations. Mm-hmm. So it's not the most tightly plotted movie in existence, more of a mood piece and character exploration, but I rather suppose that's something P.T. Anderson would admit to embracing fully in his latter works. I suppose, with the benefit of hindsight, it's not too surprising that Paul Thomas Anderson's debut feature is good, due to him being, well, Paul Thomas Anderson and all, but I imagine this would have been a pleasant surprise had I seen this back in 96. To be sure, it's not up to the level of his following films, Boogie Nights at all, but it would surely make a short list of auspicious debuts. So, yes, perhaps not worth breaking the doors down to see, but it's certainly worth asking politely for the key to the door that this film is behind <laughs> in this analogy for some reason. Look, what, what I'm trying to say is I like the movie. What more do you want from me? Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, I really, I, I suppose I really like this. The Master and Hard Eight are the only two Anderson films that have gone under my radar and you know how fond I am on uh, Boogie Nights and latterly Phantom Thread as well, actually. So, a bit surprised that I've not really caught up with those two. But I, I did. I kind of. I did enjoy the atmosphere of the piece. Uh, the the singular most important message I've taken away from this is, man, hasn't Philip Baker Hall really been overlooked uh, yeah. as as an actor? Mm-hmm. Because I don't know that he's ever been anything less than great in anything. But uh, besides besides P. T. Anderson's films, uh, you know what high profile films has he had major roles in? And I don't. I don't think the answer's all that many. So yeah. I, I really enjoyed his character in this, uh, but I was kind of disappointed. Uh, I think I get the impression, like yourself, Scott, at um, quite how the movie resolved itself. I could have I could have done without the revelation in a sense. I just wanted this to be a film about an old guy who has a reason that we never find out for yeah. for wanting to sort of pass his knowledge on to this young guy. 
And if 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 that is just out of kindness, then like that would be great. I don't I don't necessarily understand why it was necessary to uh, to introduce things because it's the least believable aspect, and I would argue least compelling aspect of the film is the yeah. the twist regarding. Sydney's character but overall I did really like it and I'd, like you it made me forget that Gwyneth Paltrow is an, an annoying Paltrow, uh, yeah. snake oil salesman yep and uh, a propagator of new age nonsense uh, and dodgy candles yes and vaginal eggs and things so yeah I did I, I really really enjoyed it for the most part for for 80% of this film I was really enjoying what it was doing with the characters and the atmosphere it was creating and a little bit let down but again like you say a pretty auspicious debut and I think pretty sharply after this Anderson honed his uh, steels quite substantially and perhaps ironically as his films uh, became longer in length there was less either it depends on which way you want to look at it there was either less extraneous plot material uh, or those movies ended up being comprised almost entirely of extraneous plot material <laughs> yeah. which is in a, which in either sense is an advancement from this so yeah uh, a really interesting movie i i don't think it's going to trouble my favorite list of all time but it's it's um, i might put this on my list of small screen sunday watches for a couple of years down the line i think it's prob- this is only P.T. Anderson film I hadn't seen and I think it's probably a good thing that I didn't make this the first time I saw a P.T. Anderson film mm. um, my first one was Magnolia because if this had been my first film I might never have bothered again because I did not like this film at all mm. and part of the problem for me is that there are no likeable characters at all and I, that's part of the point of it I get that but I need something to go on to and two-thirds of the characters, let's say there's three main characters, like two-thirds of the characters in this are stupid people, and I don't like stupid people and they make stupid decisions. And, so I've got, um, and I really like John C. Reilly. I find him, he's really good. It's just like his everybody's favourite lovable sad sack. And here he's just a, he's just such a wet noodle. He's just a sad sack without the lovable prefix. Yeah. yeah. He's just, just changed lovable for moronic, and like, I've got no time for characters like that. And actually, uh, I didn't care for Gwyneth Paltrow. Every now and then, I'll see her in something. I'm thinking, I quite like her. And then I go back to just there, thinking, yeah, snake oil salesman with her weirdly scented candles and her jade orifice fillers. Um, I just thought she was terrible in this. And also, it's because I don't know if the problem is actually the writing or the acting, but I just didn't. It's probably the acting. I, more so that she's miscast rather than bad. I absolutely didn't buy her as somebody so flaky that would have gone out and married John C. Riley that day. Yeah, that rang a bit hollow, day. didn't it? Yeah, it's like I'm not buying that. And and similarly, my other big issue with the film is like I just didn't buy Philip Baker Hall as a hitman. What I'm aware of is that maybe that's just because films have conditioned me to thinking of film hitmen in a particular way, and he didn't fit that mold. But uh, whether that's the case or not, I don't know. But I, in this film, it's like, oh, yeah, 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 no. I, I, I didn't, I like Philip Baker Hall, but I didn't buy him in that role at all. So I didn't buy him in that role. I didn't like John C. Reilly. I didn't like Gwyneth Paltrow. And I didn't think Gwyneth Paltrow's character made sense, at least as played by Gwyneth Paltrow. So there's basically nothing for me in this film. <laughs> other than, as Scott said, Samuel Jackson having hopped across some Pulp Fiction or something, you know. So, uh, so yeah, it's, this 
did nothing for me and I'm quite glad that I hadn't seen it before now because I said it might have made me miss out some of my favourite films of all time mm. Mm. because I would have been so put off by this film See for me that that Rose film by Magnolia that film just winds me up entirely the wrong way and I, I didn't mind us so much. Uh, I didn't find us as indulgent as I find Magnolia. But yeah, I get I get where you're coming from. Uh, I I wasn't as offended by Paltrow, but yeah, there was there were big aspects of that I didn't buy. I didn't have as much of a problem with the notion of Philip Baker Hall as uh, as a killer. Now that you've let the cat out of the bag, Drew. Um, I'm sorry, Craig. I'm, for anyone who hasn't seen this 25 year old film. Year old film. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I just kind of wish it had been left because I'd kind of made up my mind when he'd spoken about his two kids that he hasn't seen and he didn't really even know where they were uh, in so long then that were about uh, the ages of John C. Riley and Gwyneth Paltrow's characters. I kind of just wanted to leave it in my head as he's, he's performing these sort of kind acts and looking after these two by way of trying to come to terms and make amends for how he's treated his own children or how he's neglected his own children. And I kind of just wanted it to be left at that, really. I just, it's not that I didn't buy him as someone who could have killed someone because, uh, I'd, honestly, these days that could be anybody. But um, I just kind of felt it was unnecessary. Yeah, again, like I, said, I, just, I wasn't offended by Gwyneth Paltrow. So I just think I just didn't buy that kind of mm. that flakiness of that card, at least as portrayed by her. But if it's maybe the problem is that I'm, it's my issue with Philip Baker Hill's character, Sydney, is compounded by just I'm not buying him in that role. But yeah, you're right, it's unnecessary. Mm. You could have had that and it could have been a tragic accident or something like that. You know, yeah. when he felt you could keep almost all of that in there, including the Samuel L. Jackson blackmail. Mm-hmm. and just not have it be quite so sinister because I don't really think that adds anything yeah um, yeah. and even you could even have the finale or the um, with the Samuel Jackson arc anyway be the same just because of fear because he thinks this guy's never going to let me go or something it's desperation I think even you know also for a first time filmmaker maybe it's just the compulsion that oh man the studio's never going to give me to make <laughs> the money to make this film unless at some point someone shoots someone else yeah. like some, yeah. something notable of that scale has to happen uh, because Again, you could you could have that, but just have it be because he feels pressured and like put in a corner, and he's like he gets a gun and does that and without, and it, it would just feel very different without having it like he does that professionally and like, mm. uh, it's just, and especially to like the suggestion would be that he's in the mafia, but then if he's in the mafia and he was a suddenly a mafia hitman, then is he really going through all these casinos in Reno and Las Vegas and nobody knows him? That doesn't seem very likely. Who knows? But yeah, it's, it's just that one aspect in particular. Again, I have big other issues with the films, so that's why I don't like it at all. But that one thing, it's like just a few tweaks, and it just wouldn't have been such a kind of egregious problem for me. Mm. Uh, it wouldn't have solved the other issues, but that would have helped a lot. Mm. I think it really does, does need a bit more cohesion between its various elements that it's thrown around. It. There's too many points where you, you, it kind of throws something that is either so disconnected to whatever was happening before it or just drops in out of nowhere. Like, like I say, Philip Seymour Hoffman appearing and having a couple of scenes for no particularly good reason. It's it's just enough to kind of knock you out of the groove when you're watching it and kind of have to like re-question, oh, hang on, what's happening now again? And... At that point, the kind of the connecting tissue becomes a bit too visible. In that point, and it's uh, yeah. yeah, it kind of distracts from the film for me a bit. Yeah, they, they do feel a bit disjointed. The, the Philip Seymour Hoffman scene in particular, I'm thinking about too. Yeah, it's a bit of a waste of Philip Seymour Hoffman because mm. in fact, it's not in the whole film. It's generally a waste of Philip Seymour Hoffman. But it's like part of it seems to be kind of like he's because he's taunting them for being old and like 
it's like is that going to go down the character of like well he feels old now and comes to the end of his life or maybe hasn't fulfilled his life or anything like that because of this younger guy making fun of him like I thought maybe that's where that was going no it doesn't it doesn't have anything to do with what came before or after other than hard date thing which I still don't know what is so I kind of vaguely worked out by context but I don't care um, and it's only these gambling terms I'm like okay somebody won something on some some money on something called Kino that's good. I took from that that Kino is... Is Kino just the American word for bingo? I don't know. No, because Americans play bingo. I like Do it they? a lot. Yeah, huh. it's, like, it's very famous like in Catholic church halls and stuff. Okay. You middle-aged women and older women go and play bingo in church halls and stuff. No, it's... Um, uh, no, but again, it doesn't matter. I don't think I've got anything more from knowing, but it's like, it, there's a few bits now that kind of... I was like it's expected knowledge from the, the viewer. Though, again, I don't imagine it makes much difference. Um but yeah, again, that, that whole film somewhere often seemed like, what's, what is that adding to the film? Nothing. It didn't seem to have any utility. Yeah. And it wasn't particularly interesting. So it wasn't like just like a, a mild diversion or an interesting vignette or something. It's like, he's a kind of annoying little person <laughs> in a casino. But I guess casinos have those. Oh, the scene is over now. <laughs> I feel like that scene was there. I feel like I'd, I know the reason for that scene, but not the purpose of it. I feel like the reason that scene was there was to reveal the fact that although he's this calm, steady, sort of reassuring presence and he seems to know all of the right things to do in the casino, that that Sydney is still susceptible to impulse as well. And he's allowed himself to effectively be goaded into playing more than he wanted to to play there for some reason or other. So I felt like it was trying to show a vulnerability in his character because he just seems so Im- impenetrably right about stuff all the time and so mm-hmm. measured and assured. But, like you say, I'm not sure what the purpose of that was. No. Um... Hmm. If I'm even right in that observation, which of course I may not be. Hey, but there you go. So that's two, two all rights and a nah. Yeah, just before we go on to say, I'm talking of utility... What was the utility of that one scene where there's suddenly first-person camera shot? That struck mm. me as very odd. And it's only, it's what, 20 seconds or something? Just when Sydney's going into Clementine's room with mm. the coffee and stuff and John C. Riley's already in there. It's, like, it's first-person perspective for like 20 seconds. It's not anywhere else in the film. I hadn't even thought about that until you mentioned it now, actually, so no, I don't know. It was, that really stuck out to me like, at the time, and I've been wondering, like, what was that for? Because it's not, again, there's no consistency, it's not anywhere else, it doesn't seem to convey anything, I don't... And it feels like maybe like a first-time filmmaker experimented with something, but for for that one incredibly short moment, it doesn't seem to add anything. Why is that there? Clearly throwing his hat in the ring for the Doom adaptation. <laughs> <laughs> Why isn't there, there a version of um, Hardcore Henry... With, um, at least cut by P.T. Anderson eh? <laughs> and with Philip Baker Hall as Hardcore Henry <laughs> yeah so I'm guessing neither of you have any insight as to why no. that's there none that's whatsoever what for, no and unfortunately it's that type of insight people come to us for <laughs> well the well is dry people apparently oh, we come to us for that sort of insight and we can't satisfy ourselves because you've failed me both <laughs> that's it yep well, that will wrap us up for today, I think. Um, if you would like to get in touch with us for this reason or any other, then please do so. Um, on Twitter at FudsOnFilm, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash FudsOnFilm, or you can email us at podcast at FudsOnFilm.com. Yeah, so until next time, I'll say goodbye, and I'm sure that these guys will do too. Bye. Fairly well.